So Luke chapter 18, verse 35. Then it happened that as he, Jesus, was coming near Jericho, that a certain blind man sat by the road begging. And hearing a multitude passing by, he asked what it meant. So they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by, and he cried out, saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then those who went before him warned who went, who went before warned him that he should be quiet, but he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he had come near, he asked him, saying, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. Then Jesus said to him, Receive your sight, your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector and he was rich. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. But when they saw it, they all complained, saying, He has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for this passage of Scripture. Lord, we know it is our needful food. Lord, that you refresh our souls through your living word, which is active. Lord, we just pray that it would work effectively in each of us today. Lord, that you would speak to each one of us, whatever our situation may be, that we may know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, that you would draw us near to him, that we might behold more of his glory, more of his love. Lord, that you would lead me by your spirit, as I share from this passage, and that you would take this word and plant it in our hearts, Lord. Lord, for your glory, we give you all the praise. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So last week, Thomas shared with us about God's heart for the orphan, and we're going to carry on a similar theme today. And we see two wonderful salvation stories, don't we, in, in this passage that really demonstrate God's heart for the outcast and also this great promise that Jesus said, the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. So we're going to unpack that a little bit as we go. So Jesus, he's at the end of his earthly ministry and he's making his final journey up to Jerusalem and it's the time of Passover and within a week he would go to the cross. And we pick up this journey as Jesus, he approaches Jericho and Jericho was a a large city, very near Bethany, if you remember Mary and Martha. 
and their brother Lazarus, who'd been raised from the dead not long before this. So all the people in this area, they'd know who Jesus was. There'd be great interest surrounding Jesus. So you can imagine the multitude, the noise, the throng of the crowd as Jesus was making his way to Jerusalem. And Matthew and Mark, they both record this, this encounter with similar details. And in Mark's gospel, we learn this blind man's name is Bartimaeus. So Bartimaeus, in verse 36, hearing a multitude passing by, he asked what it meant, and he told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. So this is the scene. And just to give you a bit of context, Bartimaeus, what do we know about Bartimaeus? Well, he was blind, for one. That was his condition. It was a commonly held belief by the Jews that if a person had a disability, it was God's judgment upon that person for a past sin. This is what the people of the time believed. And we remember in John chapter 9, verse 1, it should be on the screen, we read, when Jesus was passing by, he saw a man who was blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he be born blind? Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. And the scribes and the Pharisees we see of the day, they'd misinterpreted certain scriptures, and they taught a direct relationship between a person's disability and their sin. And this was something which would obviously create a lot of prejudice, a lot of stigma for people who had disabilities, whatever it was. But Jesus said this wasn't the case, but that the glory of God would be revealed through suffering. So you can imagine the stigma this man carried around with him. He'd have no opportunity to work. He wouldn't be allowed to go to the synagogue. He wouldn't be allowed to worship or be a, a valued member of the community in any way. He was in a desperate situation. Let's see that. And Bartimaeus, he was begging on the street, which meant he had no family to care for him. But learning that Jesus was nearby, he cried out in desperation, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And we see those who went before Jesus warned the man that he should be quiet. And we see this prejudice in, in what they do, don't we? Surely the people thought Jesus would not want to be bothered by a man such as this. Be quiet. Silence. And Bartimaeus, he knew well the, the unfeeling rebuke of bystanders. He carried this stigma around with him. He'd be used to it. And in ancient times, this word stigma, it actually meant, it referred to a, a mark that was actually branded, burned into the skin of a slave or a criminal. This is where we get the word stigma from. It was literally a mark of disgrace. And today, obviously, stigma can apply to a variety of things, can't it? It can be your race, your age. It can be your personal appearance. It can be your past, something about your past. Essentially, stigma is anything that can make us feel isolated or an outcast in society, but also within the church. It can also happen within the church. And maybe you can identify with that in some way. But let's see that our stigmas do not define who we are in Christ. That's what I want us to see this morning. And we've got a handout um, on... You might not all have one, but we have a handout with... Uh, with these points we're going to go through as we look at this passage. And we see in verse 40 that Jesus stood still 
and he continued, sorry, he commanded Bartimaeus to be brought to him. And it's in Mark chapter 10, verse 49, should be on the screen. We read that they said to Bartimaeus, be of good cheer, rise. He is calling you and throwing aside his garment, he rose and came to Jesus. Bartimaeus, he threw off his beggar's cloak. That's what this garment would be. In coming to Jesus, he left everything it symbolized behind him. And I think this is just a wonderful picture of how Jesus wants us to come to him. Here is a man who knew his plight. <laughs> he was stigmatized by the community. He had nothing of himself to remedy it, nothing of his own merit. He can offer Jesus nothing. But this is, this is how Jesus wants us to come to him, isn't it? And we see throughout the Gospels, Jesus always had this special concern for the vulnerable and the needy. And as Janet shared with us, and Sarah and Ellen today, being Health Care Sunday. And as a church, we're taking time to recognize and to pray for those who are involved in health care. Many of you here are involved in caring for the vulnerable and the needy, or you're in training to do that very thing. And you demonstrate the love and the compassion of Christ in a very unique way. But we see the earthly ministry of Jesus, it's marked by this compassion. It's marked by this love for the weak and the vulnerable, and particularly the outcast. Remember the woman at the well who, was, who had a string of failed relationships and she was in fornication. The woman with the flow of blood who came to Jesus in the crowd. The woman who was caught in adultery. The lame, the paralyzed, the leper, the demon possessed, they all came to Jesus. Everyone, the one who could sympathize with their weakness. And they all received grace and mercy. Because only Jesus would bear their mark of shame at the cross. They all came to Jesus. And I think sometimes we feel God can deal roughly with our weaknesses, with our failures. But actually the opposite is true. There's a really important verse. I just came across it when I was preparing for this message yesterday. And it's in Matthew 12, verse 20. And I remembered this. It's a prophecy of Jesus from Isaiah. It says, A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not extinguish. And this is an amazing reference to the gentle character of Jesus. How tenderly and how gently he deals with us. He helps us along until the bruised reed is strong and the smouldering wick is fanned into flame. That's what Jesus wants to do. Jesus sees the value in a bruised reed. Even when no one else can. And we sing, don't we? Can we find a friend so faithful? Who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. What a friend we have in Jesus. Hallelujah. Let's bring it all to him. So Bartimaeus, he was rebuked to remain silent, we see. But his need was great. He cries out even louder, Son of David, have mercy on me. And this was a cry of faith, wasn't it? Remember when Bartimaeus was asking the crowds, what's all the commotion? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Well, to Bartimaeus, Jesus wasn't Jesus of Nazareth. <laughs> to Bartimaeus, Jesus was son of David. Jesus, son of David. And that's important. Why address Jesus in this way? 
but we don't need to move too far from our passage in Luke. If you look in chapter 1, back a few pages, remember Gabriel came to Mary and he tells her who her child will be. Verse 32, he will be great, he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And we've seen through Chronicles, haven't we, about God's chosen king. Jesus is the anointed king. He's the rightful heir to the throne of David, King David. So this name, Son of David, it encapsulates all the covenant promises that God made to David. And it's a royal title, but it's a messianic title as well. And all the people here would recognize that name. They'd know what Son of David referred to in Bartimaeus crying out, Son of David, have mercy on me. So this name, it tells us that Jesus, he not only had royal Davidic authority, but he had authority as the Son of God, divine authority as well. And for Bartimaeus to address Jesus in this way, it showed a genuine, true, saving faith in who Jesus was as the coming King, the Redeemer of Israel, the Messiah. So Jesus stood still in verse 40 and commanded Bartimaeus to be brought to him. Say that Jesus heard that one voice in all the noise, in all the throng and the commotion of what was going on. Jesus heard that one voice cry out to him. Son of David, have mercy on me. And this, I find this amazing. Jesus stood still. He allows this man to interrupt his journey. And I was thinking, what journey is that exactly? And a little bit further back in the chapter of 18 in Luke, we see Jesus says to his disciples, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. All things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man must be accomplished. Nothing would stop Jesus walking that path of obedience to the cross. And those who tried to stop him, remember those who tried to stone him? Those who tried to arrest him, what happened? He passed right through their midst. No one could stop him. But he stopped here. He stopped for this outcast, for Bartimaeus, the blind beggar, who no one cared for. No one valued him in any way, but Jesus did. What does that tell us? tells us that we're all a part of God's redemptive purpose. Everyone, every one of you sitting here, we are all a part of God's redemptive purpose. What the people saw as an unnecessary interruption, an unwelcome interruption, Jesus saw as a divine appointment. Jesus had a divine appointment with Bartimaeus that day, regardless of what the people said. In the verse 41 we read, when he had come near, Jesus asked him, saying, what do you want me to do you. Notice that he wanted Bartimaeus to come to him and ask. But actually Bartimaeus' prayer, it actually began with the words, have mercy on me. That's when that prayer began. And that was more just a request for healing, wasn't it? There's a measure of repentance here. It wasn't just heal me. He didn't just say, heal me. He says, have mercy on me. And that's important. He ignores the warnings of the crowd and he recognises that only the Son of David could show him mercy. Only Jesus could give him mercy. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. He literally replies, 
Lord, that I may see again. So it may be Bartimaeus, he lost his sight. Maybe he wasn't born blind, we don't know. But we know that God was sovereignly working in his life and it brought him to the point, to that roadside begging where Jesus would walk by as he was making his way to the cross. He brought Bartimaeus to this point, to this place to meet his saviour. And in verse 42, Jesus said, receive your sight, your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight. Receive your sight. Jesus speaks with all the divine authority. The son of God was given on earth. This is the last miracle that Jesus would do before, obviously, the resurrection. But this is the last healing miracle. And it was a fulfillment of what he said earlier in Luke. He said, go and tell John, the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news proclaimed to them. But Bartimaeus, he hadn't witnessed any of these miracles. He was blind, right? But he'd heard the report of the mighty works that Jesus had done. He heard the report of who Jesus was, and hearing, he believed. And like Bartimaeus, we don't see Jesus. In an earthly sense, we don't see Jesus, do we? But through the scriptures, we have the report of his power, the report of his grace and of his great love for us and his willingness to save. So let's strive to have this precious-like faith like Bartimaeus, whom having not seen, you love, Peter tells us of Jesus, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. So notice that Jesus says, your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. Bartimaeus believed that Jesus was the promised king. Jesus was the only one he needed. He was the only one that could show him mercy. And this verb, made you well, in the Greek, it, it's actually another verb meaning to save. There's two verbs, one meaning to heal, one meaning to save. So Jesus literally says, your faith has saved you. Your faith has saved you. So let's see that we are all part of God's redemptive purpose here today. And let's move on to verse 43. Immediately he received his sight. He followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. And this is just a wonderful picture of how God, how Jesus removes our blindness to walk in his light. Amen? Notice Jesus... Jesus didn't ask anything of him. The request was, have mercy on me. Lord, that I may see. And Bartimaeus, he didn't return home having received his sight, did he? He didn't run off, find his, he didn't have any friends probably, but whoever it was, you know, he, he did one thing. He followed Jesus, glorifying God. And it's interesting that Mark actually names him. I think John's mentioned recently that when the gospel writers name certain people, it's very unusual for, for someone who's been healed to be named. And Bartimaeus is one of the only ones who is named. Um, and that generally means these people would be known by the early church. So Bartimaeus was probably 
someone the early church would know, a name they'd recognize. And the name Bartimaeus is interesting. Bartimaeus, Bar is son of, and Timaeus actually means worth or honor. So literally, the name Bartimaeus means son of worth. But that's who we all are in Christ, isn't it? Having encountered our Savior. He's lifted our blindness to follow him. This is who we are in Christ. So imagine Bartimaeus, he'd actually witness the son of David, the king of kings, enter Jerusalem riding on a, a donkey to shout of Hosanna. Hosanna. It's the first thing Bartimaeus would have seen with his own eyes. His saviour riding into Jerusalem, the son of David. Amazing picture. But just imagine the overwhelming joy he would have felt. So Bartimaeus, he was an outcast. An outcast who found his worth, his value and salvation in Christ. But moving on, there's one other man. (laughs) There's one other man that Jesus had a divine appointment with that day. And only Luke includes this final salvation story. Let's just read 19 verses 1 to 3 again. Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich, and he sought to see who Jesus was. But he could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. So we're introduced to Zacchaeus. I love this guy. And again, Luke names him, and that's important. And Zacchaeus, he wanted to see Jesus, but let's be honest, it was a big crowd, and he was a little guy. Oh, he was a a wee guy, as we used to sing in Sunday school. (laughs) It's not a good combination, is it? But already we've got something about his physical appearance. There's a stigma there. And maybe it's something we've all struggled with at some point. Something to do with our physical appearance. And second, he's a tax collector. And it's in verse 7 we realise because of this, the people called him a sinner. But just to give you some context to Zacchaeus, and as we said Jericho, it was a prosperous city. It was the main trade center in the area, and it would have been full of tax collectors. Zacchaeus, he's described as the chief tax gatherer. Right? He's in charge of collecting taxes throughout this whole district. But collecting taxes isn't wrong. We know collecting taxation is not Legitimate taxation is not wrong. God has ordained governments and taxation is a part of government's ruling. But God does have a problem with illegitimate tax when people are separated from their money wrongly. And this is, the, this is what we see with the tax collectors of this time. They were collecting taxes for Rome as well, or tribute as it's called. And they became very rich doing it because they only actually paid Rome a portion of what they collected. So they were very rich. And Zacchaeus was the top of the pile. All the other tax collectors collectors extorted for him. So he was the richest. What does that mean for Zacchaeus? It means he was despised. He was despised. He was hated. More More than you could imagine. So Zacchaeus, albeit for very different reasons, he's also in the category of outcast. But actually, Zacchaeus would be held in a lower regard than the blind beggar by his community. 
And we see because he was working for Rome, they'd regard him in the same way as a Gentile. He was unclean, he was defiled. He was doing something the other Jews would find absolutely despicable. And because of this, as a consequence, a bit like Bartimaeus, he couldn't go to the synagogue, he couldn't worship in the temple. He couldn't even have atonement offered for him, for his sin. He was in a desperate situation. Think leper. Zacchaeus was very much like a leper in, in many ways. The Jews would see him in the same way as they'd view a leper. They would want nothing to do with him. And tax collectors, they certainly wouldn't expose themselves to large crowds because of this. <laughs> but where is Zacchaeus? He's right in the midst. Right in the midst of this multitude. He obviously can't see Jesus, so he runs ahead. <laughs> he finds a vantage point. He finds a tree. He knows the route that Jesus would take. And in verse 5, we see when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. It's amazing. And as with Bartimaeus, Jesus allows Zacchaeus to interrupt his journey. He stops and he notices Zacchaeus. And I think we have a, a slide. It's got a tree on it. And I love, I love what this says. Long before Zacchaeus couldn't see Jesus, the tree was planted to meet his need. It's amazing. It's a simple picture of God's sovereign providence, you could say. Jesus calls out his name, Zacchaeus. Can you imagine? This, this man, he was so despised. So despised. No one would have ever called his name. They'd probably call him many things. But not Zacchaeus, but Jesus the one that he would never have dreamt would know his name. Jesus knows his name. I think Zacchaeus probably fell out of the tree with shock. That's the line that's missed out of chapter 19. But Jesus knew him. Jesus knew him and he called him by name. And this is a character of Jesus, isn't it? It reminds us of Psalm 23. Jesus, the good shepherd. He knows us by name and he has sovereignly called each one. He knows those sheep who are his. He calls his sheep by name and he leads them out. This is a character of God. So Jesus tells Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for today I must stay at your house. Is this a request? For today I must stay at your house. It's not a request, is it? It's an you could say it's an imperative. Do not delay Zacchaeus, I've called you by name. Jesus had a divine appointment with Zacchaeus that day. For today I must stay at your house. So let's say that God is not seeking sinners in some random, unintentional way. But he seeks sinners in an intentional, sovereign way. He seeks us. And we sung this in worship today, didn't we? How God is sovereign over us. Acts 17, verse 26, tells us that he has determined our pre-appointed times and the boundaries of our dwellings so that we should seek the Lord in the hope that we might grow up for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. And if you're sitting here today and you don't know Jesus, the same is true of you. You're not here by accident. Be encouraged that Jesus knows your pre-appointed times and the boundaries of your dwelling so that you should seek Jesus. 
He knows us by name, amen, and he sovereignly calls each one. So how does Zacchaeus react? Let's look at verse 6. Zacchaeus made haste. He came down and received him joyfully. But when they saw it, they all complained, saying, he has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Wow. So let's say that Zacchaeus, first he obeys the call of Jesus. That's the most important thing. He obeys the call of Jesus. He received Jesus gladly, rejoicing. Zacchaeus welcomed the king to his home that day. And notice he doesn't let the crowd's disapproval curb his joy. But you can imagine the reaction of the crowd. But previously, what had they witnessed? They'd witnessed a miracle. They'd witnessed Bartimaeus regaining his sight, following Jesus, glorifying God, and all the people praise God to see such an amazing thing. But for Jesus to call out this man, what was their reaction? Very different. He has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner, someone who is despised, unclean. He made people's lives a misery. Why would Jesus defile himself in this way? That's what the crowd was thinking. And the Pharisees called Jesus a friend of tax collectors and sinners, didn't they? But he never condoned, he never condoned a sinful lifestyle. And this is what I want us to see. Jesus brought grace, holiness, and salvation to the home of a sinner. He didn't ask the sinner to change. He didn't say, right, Zacchaeus, before I come to your home, you've got to do this, this, and this. He said, no, today I'm coming to your home. And he brings holiness and grace and the hope of salvation. And this name Zacchaeus, it's also quite revealing. Zacchaeus means pure, innocent, and righteous. And I think his parents had high hopes. But he couldn't have been more unclean, guilty, unrighteous, could he? But again, it serves to remind us of how God views us in Christ. He saves sinners who have no merit. Nothing in us that can commend us to him by his grace alone. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians, keep Zacchaeus in mind when I read this, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And the early church was well known for its acceptance of outcasts. They were actually despised for it. They'd welcome people like this into their church, such as the two that we see here. But it's only by the grace of God, isn't it? Such as these two, such as us, that God can use us to further his kingdom and can use us for, his, for our good and for his glory. But Jesus stayed in the home of this man. It meant that he'd likely ate, drank, slept there. The implication is he was here, he stayed overnight. And that just reminded me of something we read in John chapter 14. Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. And it's a picture for us, isn't it? As we obey, Jesus makes his home with us. He wants to take up residence in our heart. 
And I was reading a, a devotion with my son by uh, Max Lucado, and he was talking about this. It was called A Home for Your Heart, and it's about how we give so much thought to our homes. Imagine your home now, how we take so much time and give so much attention to the comforts that we have, our bodies have, and how nicely presented and how nice our homes are. But we forget sometimes how Jesus wants to share his home with us. He's prepared a roof to be over our heads. He, he, he wants us to dine with him. There's always a place at his table for us, whether we remember to dine with him or not. There's always a place for us. And that devotion ended with saying, is our soul safe and secure with God today? I thought that was a really a devotion aimed at a seven-year-old boy, but I was, I was blown away by that. God enters the home and the heart of a sinner. And that's where we get that word abiding. Jesus abides with us. Abiding means make your home with. Jesus makes his home in our heart. If we let him, if we invite him in. So how does this encounter change Zacchaeus? And I love this part. Verse 8. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Lord, look, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. So we see half of his wealth immediately he gives to the poor. But what about the other half? Well, he keeps that back because anyone else he defrauded, he had to give fourfold. How many people would that be? That would be a lot of people. No doubt, not just the ones he ripped off, but all the other tax collectors that were extorting for him. And Levitical law said that anyone who'd wronged another had to restore back in full with one-fifth interest, which is 20%, right? He could have done that. Or he could have gone one step further. In Exodus, in the case of robbery, it talks about a two-fold restoration. That's 100%. Sorry, that's 200%. Get my maths right. <laughs> he could have done that. And he would have been in obedience with the law. But no. I restore fourfold, Zacchaeus said. And for this, we have to go to Exodus 22, verse 1. It should be on the screen. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. And this is a law where essentially, if you robbed anybody with violence causing destruction, a fourfold restitution was required. And this was how Zacchaeus saw his sin. He saw his sin, the extent of his sin, the harm, the damage that he'd caused. <coughs> and there's a lesson for us here, isn't there? Zacchaeus could have said, yep, 10%, 200%. I'm still in line with the law. I'm still doing, I'm still obeying God. But no. For Zacchaeus, it wasn't how little can I do and get away with it. Or, how little can I obey and still be considered a follower of Jesus? No, it was show me the maximum demonstration of obedience. This is what I want to do for you, Jesus. This was the change in his heart. And he needed to keep back off, <laughs> to give 400% back to those he defrauded, he defrauded and most likely hurt. Lives were destroyed because of 
what this man and the people under him had done. And he realized the extent of his sin. And he wanted to restore back what he'd done. So notice that Zacchaeus, he strips himself of everything he has, even his honest gain, even the tax that he collected, the portion that he was allowed to keep, he gave everything away. And let's see that God's grace, his abundant grace, restores back what sin has taken when we come to Jesus. This is the reality. In coming to Jesus, Zacchaeus was actually the richest he'd ever been. Paul speaks about how in coming to Jesus, we receive the riches of God's grace in his kindness towards us in Christ. A bit earlier in this chapter, remember the rich, the rich man, he says, you know, what, what can I do? And Jesus says, give everything you have and then you'll have treasure in heaven. And this is what Zacchaeus realized that day. And that's when he followed him. So Zacchaeus was a despised, a corrupt tax collector who met with Jesus and became a joyful giver. Jesus says in verse 9, today salvation has come to this house. Today. So we know there was genuine repentance in the heart of Zacchaeus, even though there's no narrative. We don't see what Jesus says. There's no, um, there's no conversation. There's no repentance. He doesn't um, speak about his sin in any way. But we see that today salvation came to this house. It's a wonderful picture of, of grace restoring what years of sin had taken. And then Jesus continues, salvation has come to this house because he is also a son of Abraham. Why does Jesus say this? We, we know Zacchaeus is Jewish. Seems like he's stating the obvious. I think there's two things. No doubt his fellow Jews questioned and probably mocked Zacchaeus, that, are you even a real Jew? You know, you, you align yourself with Gentiles, you're collecting taxes for Rome. He probably mocked whether he was actually a Jew, but Jesus says, you are a descendant of Abraham, make no mistake. And that's an affirming statement. I think that would have brought great courage, great comfort to Zacchaeus. But more importantly, Paul, in Romans, the Apostle Paul in chapter two, he talks about how a true son of Abraham is not a son outwardly. He is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit. And he follows this in Galatians saying, only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. So Jesus is also saying this, isn't he? Here is a true spiritual son of Abraham who today has put his faith in the son of man and salvation has come to this house and the same can be said of us as we put our faith in Jesus true sons of God and this story finishes in verse 10 for the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost it's such a wonderful statement to finish on isn't it we see Jesus as son of David with Bartimaeus and now he's son of man and it's another messianic title that Jesus used speaking of his own humanity the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. But this has always been the heart of God. And we see that in Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 16. I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken and strengthen the weak. And this is personified for us here in Jesus Christ, isn't it? 
the Son of God dwelling amongst us. And we can stray very far from God. But we're never lost to God. And no story, in my opinion, demonstrates this heart of God more than the story of Zacchaeus. And it's interesting, just before this encounter with Zacchaeus, we see Jesus tells the parable of the the Pharisee and the tax collector. In verse 18, let's just take a quick look at this. Jesus told this parable to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. Does it remind you anyone? I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. You see, Jesus valued Bartimaeus and Zacchaeus in a way that no one else had ever valued them before. He brought new hope. He brought saving grace and a way of restoring back what sin had taken. And I think both of these men, because they were named, I dare to say that they were included in the 120 in the upper room on the day of of Pentecost. Can we put them there? I think we can. I think that's okay. Maybe we'll see them again soon. And it's a beautiful picture of salvation, how Jesus is transforming his people. So, just to close, really, these amazing salvation stories. It's an important gospel truth as we apply this to understand that Jesus became the outcast for us. Speaking of Christ, the prophet Isaiah said, in Isaiah 53, you all know the scripture, he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised. We did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten, by God and afflicted. And this is the reality for us today, that Jesus became the outcast for us, that we might know the love of God in Christ. We can know God's love because Jesus was rejected, Jesus was despised, he was betrayed, accused, and he went to the cross for us and was raised on the third day that we might know God through that great sacrifice, that we might be brought near to God through his sacrifice at the cross. And Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. He says, At that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's who we were before we came to Christ. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Therefore, you are no longer strangers, foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And maybe you're here and you feel 
outside of God's presence. You're struggling to accept your worth, your value to God in Christ. Or maybe you feel weak or burdened beyond what you can bear. But I want to encourage you, our relationship does not depend on our weak nature. It depends on the unending grace of God in Christ Jesus. Amen. Charles Spurgeon, he said, let your weakness plead with God through Jesus Christ. His mercies are deep enough to hold secure what you cannot. If you put your faith in Christ, know that you who once far off are no longer a stranger but a beloved child. Jesus has brought you near to his throne of grace. And if you don't know Jesus here today, be of good cheer. He knows you. He knows you by name and he loves you and he's calling you. Don't delay. Don't delay. Will you invite him in? Can I ask Abby to come up and close with a song? Wherever Abby is. I think it's just Abby. (laughs) So we see God's heart for the outcast. His grace for the sinner. Praise God. But we also see how, how we can reach and value those that others will push away. And Jesus now calls us to love the outcast. How do we view people who have been rejected by others, by society? How do we view them? The temptation is for us to view them the same way, isn't it? If we're honest. But let's ask God to give us a heart, to give us his heart for those that society would deem as an outcast, that others would want to push away. I think it might, if we truly ask God to give us that heart, it might cost us. It might mean we have to act differently, think differently as we come alongside these people. But as we follow Jesus, through us, God is seeking and saving those that others would want to push away, the outcast. Let's ask God for that heart. And lastly, we're to have this heart within the church as well for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is where perhaps we can forget about the, about the outcast, having read those amazing scriptures in Ephesians. But there may be people who feel like that, even in our church. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 25, there should be no division in the body, but that its part should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honoured, Every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. So let's be mindful of those in our congregation that might be struggling in this way. Let's ask God to just open our eyes to those people we'd prefer not to see. To open our lives to those we'd prefer not to love. Our hearts. Let's ask God to give us his heart. And let's sing this song. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Amen.